Focal Point, the IMV Imaging Podcast. I'm Harriet, your host, and I'm joined by the usual crew, Sam and Amy. So hello to both of you. Hi, everybody. Hello. Uh, we have a really exciting episode for you this month as we welcome Dr. Simon Gerling to the podcast. Simon is a European specialist in zoo management and an RCDS specialist in zoo and wildlife medicine. He's currently the head of veterinary services at the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, which involves overseeing the health plans for all the animals held at both Edinburgh Zoo and the Highland Wildlife Park. Not only that, Simon has been involved with a number of conservation projects over the year in both the UK and overseas, including the Eurasian beavers and Scottish wildcats. He's also previously held the positions of President of the European College of the Zoological Medicine and the President of the British Veterinary Zoological Society and countless other achievements during his career. So I am thrilled to welcome you to the podcast, Simon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I know I've given a really brief overview of your amazing career so far, but please tell us a little bit more about your path into zoo health management and how it all started. Um, well, it, um, I graduated um, quite some time ago in the last century, like a number of um, uh, my colleagues that I work with, um, uh, at, from Glasgow Vet School and had a, really wanted to go into mixed practice, to be honest, when I first started and did. Uh, and that's, that's uh, I worked for, for a while in, in Cumbria in, in uh, a typical, um, now very rare, um, mixed practice setting. Um, and enjoyed the variety, and that was that was my first calling. I enjoyed the variety of species that I was uh, exposed to, and, and a position then came up in a veterinary hospital um, in in Edinburgh um, for a vet. And at the time, it was a um, a an opening in a in a pet um, uh, superstore, uh, uh, and this was long before um, the current um, uh, vet um, uh, associated pet superstore chains uh, had appeared. Um, so this was um, very unusual. It was very interesting. The pet superstore in question sold a lot of uh, exotic pets, particularly reptiles, which I had been interested in um, when I was at, um, uh, at college. Um, and I became more and more um, enraptured, entranced, fascinated, um, excited about the um, sheer breadth and variety of uh, species um, that uh, uh, I was being exposed to and started to um, uh, to, to really uh, learn a bit more about them uh, really off my own bat. Um, we, we had very, very little uh, undergraduate training, if any at all, in exotic pets. I think we had a a day on rodents, um, an afternoon on cage bird husbandry, and I think we had a couple of guest lectures on reptile medicine and surgery um, that lasted about sort of half an hour each, and that that was your lot in five years. So I was starting from a fairly low base, um, but yeah, did my RCVS certificate uh, from practice, I then did my RCVS diploma. Uh, from practice and built up a referral service in Edinburgh. Um, and like so many people that, that work with exotics, um, you rapidly find that many vets, like I, I was in the situation when I started, many vets do not uh, have any um, uh, knowledge and therefore fear the exotic pet patient. And so consequently, we're more than glad to, to refer cases or indeed just to pass cases over. Um, and so people 
we found clients coming from from you know the far north of Scotland, from from northern England, um, to 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 come and see a vet that was willing to see whichever weird and wonderful animal they they could bring along um and it kind of snowballed from there and 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 we got i got to do some work with um private um collections that held primates and um you know more unusual species and a couple of small zoological collections um in scotland at the time and bird collections predominantly um but also invertebrate places raptor places um and, and as I say, ended up doing my RCVS diploma from practice. And I think the at the time, um, I think I was the first one to do the the avian um, subdiscipline diploma, uh, RCVS. It had only been around the RCVS diploma in zoological medicine for a couple of years. And there were a couple of diplomates in the reptile subdiscipline, I think one in the mammalian. And then I, I got the avian one. Um, and that really kind of set me on, on, on my way. Um, and the more varied species I was exposed to, the more varied species I wanted to see. And so I guess it was a natural progression from there to go into more zoo and conservation side of things. Um, uh, the, the exotic pets side of things was, was interesting and fascinating, but at the same time, I wanted to do more um, to do with with conservation, um, and I worked for a period of time down south um, in uh, southern England. Worked with a bunch of um, uh, wildlife and um, uh, raptor centres and uh, a couple of zoos uh, down there as well, uh, Marwell Zoo in particular, um, uh, and then um, finally came back to, to to Scotland, but did it did it in a very peculiar way. I, I actually had become a specialist in zoo and wildlife medicine while I was still in Scotland in in private practice, but um, ended up um, um, for various family reasons coming back to Scotland um, and taking um, a position uh, initially in an in an emergency out of hours centre. Um, where where I was seeing predominantly dogs and cats, but then obviously built up a, a, an exotics following and was very interested in some of the exotics emergencies. And that kind of sparked an interest in the acute uh, uh, emergency exotic patient. Um, uh, but then um, moved from there into government um, and ended up working for what used to be the State Veterinary Service, now is APHA. Um, and uh, ended up being the, the, the uh, temporary DVM in, in South East Scotland. Um, but of course, um, still interested in conservation and unusual pets and of course, zoo side of things and rapidly found that um, APHA also had a dearth of vets who knew anything about zoos and exotic species. And so got landed with doing the circus welfare inspections um uh so the, the this was prior to the um the ban on uh, wild animals and circuses and at the time when they were looking into um uh, the welfare situation of elephants tigers and so forth in in circuses so i got to go on a number of uh circus inspections to do welfare assessments and and got landed with the whole of the zoo licensing side of things uh, from the uh, defra perspective uh, as as well um uh, and that actually, ironically, when I finally came to, when the job came up at um, Edinburgh uh, Zoo, um, the, the clearly being a, a specialist in zoo and wildlife medicine was important 
important because I had the background and knowledge and had worked in a, some zoological collections prior. But actually, the thing that most attracted Edinburgh Zoo to me at the time was the fact that I fully understood um, from a, um, a governmental perspective, the legislation, um, how animals could be moved between collections, what was needed, um, the health planning and so on and so forth, which was an area that, that, that often is not to say overlooked by zoo vets, but it's not, it's not particularly exciting part of the zoo job, it has to be said, but it's, it's essential to be able to do the work of conservation because no zoo in the, uh, um, certainly in, in the UK, let alone uh, Europe, I'm sure, uh, has enough space, more money to hold uh, enough of one species. They have to continuously breed often pairs or small groups and then move offspring to other zoos um, to ensure that genetic diversity is maintained. Uh, and the only way that can happen is by understanding how the legislation works and how um, you can move those animals easily and uh, with minimal risk. Um, so actually, ironically, that, that I think pretty much got me the job at Edinburgh Zoo in the first instance. Um, so when I talk to students about how to get into the zoo world, um, I, I, I do stress probably don't do it the way I did it, because I'm not sure that it's a route that uh, it wasn't a route I planned. Let's put it that way. I wanted to go into zoos, but that wasn't the route I planned. And when it comes to dealing or treating zoo and wildlife animals, are you doing it like you did in mixed practice? So taking, is it overall herd health or are you treating individual animals at a time? It's a mixture of both. Um, the, the, the European College of Zoological Medicine, which, I, I, as you said, mentioned before, um, I, I was president uh, of, is a relatively new college and it's an umbrella college. So it has a, a bunch of disciplines sitting underneath it. So there's an overall college of zoological medicine and then they have reptile medicine and surgery, avian medicine and surgery, small pet mammal to the rabbits and rodents medicine and surgery. Wildlife population health, which is really about, um, uh, uh, you know, free-ranging wildlife and uh, epidemiological studies to do with wildlife disease. And then zoo health management, which is the diploma that I have. Um, and that's a relatively new discipline. And we set up a residency program and have so far put um, three people through it at Edinburgh um, Zoo, a three-year residency program. And that discipline, as its name suggests, zoo health management is about herd management and health management and how to manage a collection. However, obviously within that, we are treating individual animals. Um, so whilst we have to have preventative plans as you would expect to have on a you know in a farming situation you'd have a herd health plan um, you know uh, we would we would have those sorts of plans for different species different taxa different uh, uh, groups but at the same time obviously individual animals fall sick and so we have to treat and manage individual animals uh, as well so it's it's kind of a mixture of both and I often say although the um, the kind of um, small animal practice side of things is very, very important for learning surgical skills because we, we do very, you know, we do minimal amounts of surgery in the zoo world. Um, we're, we're obviously not neutering large numbers of animals on a regular basis. We, we sincerely hope our animals are not being involved in road traffic accidents and other awful things. So we don't tend to have to do a lot of orthopedic surgery. Um, we need to learn our surgical skills in 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 
private practice in the first instance uh, because we get very little chance to do it in, in, in the zoo world. And so the small animal side of things is, is key to that. But actually, a lot of our skill set comes from our mixed or large animal practice side of things when we talk about um, herd management. Just coming back to what you were saying about your residency training program at um, Edinburgh, um, I noticed also that you are doing postgraduate courses for nurses and exotic pet treatment and management. Um, I imagine they're pretty popular, are they? Can you talk a bit about those? Uh, yes, yeah, so this is something that I set up with my uh, my wife, um, Dr. Mary Fraser, many, many years ago when she was um, working at uh, what used to be Edinburgh's Telford College. Um, and she was um, a lecturer in, uh, to, to veterinary nurse undergraduates there. And because of my, my interest in exotic pet um, medicine, um, we decided she, she wanted to run some, some extra courses there. And I started to, to sort of write some courses. Um, and in the end, we ended up creating a, um, a qualification with City and Guilds, uh, which was uh, known as the, the Certificate in Veterinary Nursing of Exotic uh, Species. Um, and uh, it had a, a really good following. And when um, uh, Telford College um, uh, 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 changed um, campus, um, they downsized a lot of their uh, additional courses and decided that they weren't going to going to run this particular course any anymore uh, and so um, Mary and myself um, approached them and said look you know we, we put quite a lot of time and effort into this and we think it's still useful we still believe that there's a following for it um, is there any chance that we could um, we could take it off your hands again because uh, we pretty much ran it ourselves through Telford College as it was and they went yeah fine <laughs> take it do what you want with it um, and so we, we we took it from what was a uh, correspondence-based course, so it was always distance learning. Uh, but was a uh, you know we in the days when we used to post work into the college and then you know we used to post it back out again, uh, and we, we we took it and digitized it and put it all online and created a modular format and then added a zoo module to it as well, um, and we find that this is yeah has been been very popular. Um, we have students um, obviously a significant number in the UK. Um, it's it's still city and guilds. It's a qualification that city and guilds um, approve, so it's an advanced. Um, uh, course approved by city and guilds but at the same time obviously being online it, it has a great appeal to overseas students as well and we have a significant number of veterinary nurses that have done the course in uh, Hong Kong, New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, um, the Middle East, um, South Africa so it, it's been really quite um, uh, yeah quite popular quite interesting it's it's a lot of work and effort for the veterinary nurses because it's quite an intensive course um, but um, the feedback we've had has been very positive and they um, it gives them confidence in the practice often they then become the go-to person in the in the practice for anything to do with a you know non uh, dog cat um, case um, and I think that you know you know that has a, a, a cachet about it clearly it gives them kudos within the practice but at the same time also clearly they're also attracting clients that they wouldn't necessarily uh, have attracted before because again there's somebody in the practice that not only um, has a passion for, for, for the weird and wonderful but also has that knowledge base as well so yeah it's 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 been over 
I'm just trying to think how long we've been running. I mean, it must be nearly 25 years we've been running this course in one shape or form or another. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're getting close to, to a quarter of a century on this one. But, uh, yeah, it's been a lot, of, a lot of fun and a lot of uh, um, interesting people we've met along the way. That sounds awesome. Have you got any statistics for how many people you've put through at 25 years duration? Well, we we, we kind of looked at that and it, it's because of the, the original course was done through Edinburgh Telford College, there's a bit of a grey area as exactly how many we had. But we we believe that we've, we've probably put just over three and a half thousand veterinary nurses at some point um, through this particular course in one shape or form or another over the last 20, 25 years or so. Um, so there are, there are quite a number of them out there who have this this qualification and that that triggered their interest. And some have then gone on to do degrees, um, you know, in zoology and other things. Um, and some of them have gone on to, um, uh, as I say, go into specialist um, uh, exotic pet or zoo practices and we've had um, several veterinary nurses that have actually landed jobs with zoos um, uh, uh, on the back of these qualifications uh, and a couple of the, the veterinary nurses that work with um, with myself at uh, at Edinburgh actually have the uh, the qualifications as well. Do you find when you are performing diagnostic procedures or workups on exotic animals or zoo animals it's very similar to say small animal practice I can imagine with the smaller mammals or reptiles and um, you can just you know pop them on an x-ray plate and and take an x-ray and um, but what about the the larger primates or you know the larger animals that you have in the collection yeah I mean we have um yeah we have challenges I mean that that the, we could be looking at anything from a you know a poison arrow frog of 15 grams one day to uh you know six and uh, well, a six-year-old, uh, two and a half ton um, Indian uh, one-horned rhino the next day. So the, the 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 problem we have diagnostic imaging in particular and radiography, ultrasound is is just um, the flexibility of the system. Um, uh, it, it really does have to be able to cope with a phenomenal varied range. And there are some things we clearly just just cannot image because they're too big or the hide is too dense um, uh, in order to, to get a clear image. Um, most of the um, uh, you know larger and certainly more uh, hazardous species, so the, the, most of the primates for example, we clearly have to anaesthetize um, in order to get good positioning but then obviously we're, we're, we're doing that in domestic animal practice to get decent positioning. Um, we just have the added uh, problem that some of the animals are, are a bit bitey or a, uh, a, a, bit, uh, a bit aggressive as well. Um, with some of the animals, though, we can and have trained um, to allow uh, conscious radiographs to be taken, for example, or conscious ultrasound. Um, so uh, here at our Harlem Wildlife Park, we've got a lot of um, uh, uh, training. We work with uh, an equine behaviorist here um, who's done wonders with our Chevalsky's horses so that we can actually um, treat them very much like a domestic horse um, when it comes to radiography um, and uh, sampling and diagnostic testing. Um, uh, even with our uh, rhinos, we've, we've, we've done some positive operant training at Edinburgh Zoo, and so we, we can take foot x-rays, um, uh, you know, if we've got a, a, a lameness problem or something of that nature, um, without having to anaesthetize the animal. 
the things like um yeah some of the, the bigger primates and certainly obviously uh, many of the of the carnivores then yes we 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 have to anesthetize and first take our kits and equipment to them uh often um and uh um yeah carry out uh, uh field radiography or field ultrasound uh, uh in order to get our get our tests I think it's absolutely phenomenal that you've got to the point where you can take x-rays from a rhino without any sedation or anaesthetic or anything, because they're obviously so clearly lethally dangerous that you've got somebody that's that's been good enough and bold enough to do some positive operant training. I just think that's phenomenal. Yeah, they, they, we're often doing it in a, to be fair, in a protected semi-protected contact situation so we're we're often protected behind bars but we're able to reach through and around and position things with uh, plates with poles and so on and so forth um, we used to work in a very much more free contact way with a lot of these animals um, but health and safety inevitably has um, uh, uh, made us revise and review and so uh, we do much more in protected contact but actually yes the positive operant training of these guys uh, we used to have Malayan tapirs for example at uh, Edinburgh sadly we, we, we don't have them at the moment um, but they were a particular species they're pretty docile but um, you know serious accidents have occurred they've got quite um, sharp pointy forward-facing teeth and if you're not really sure what a sort of tapir looks like you know think of a um, a short proboscis uh, on the head of a horse um, uh, something that is probably about um, the size of a, um, a a large pony they're docile animals they're, they're quite a size the malayan tapirs certainly are, are 300 kilos the brazilian tapirs are um, uh, smaller um, they are and have been uh, associated in, in uh, captivity at least um, uh, with injuries to keeping staff um, and uh, very occasionally mortalities um, they're not as I say aggressive this is uh, more a feature of their uh, nervousness and their uh, likelihood to spook um, if uh, startled um, but occasionally and, and obviously being a sizable animal they can they can cause injuries that way but occasionally they may bite they've got forward pointing quite sharp tusks um, which they can use to 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 inflict wounds so you have to be careful but actually as I say they're really docile and um, keeping staff and uh, that work around them on a regular basis frequently use a technique called the scratch down technique uh, which as its name suggests that, that they, they start to scratch down the back and then round the flanks um, and tapirs will often go into a sort of a semi-trance like state and then they'll lie down and on their side and roll over uh, so that basically you can you can then examine them um, if you're careful and you're calm and you're quiet um, and indeed um, uh, we would have um, several occasions we had uh, tapirs where that were uh, trained and sufficiently um, at ease with the keeping staff and the veterinary staff that we can we can take blood samples and administer medications that way as well without having to to go down the route of, of sedation so tapirs are fascinating and lovely creatures but uh, we could again do diagnostic imaging with a lot of tapirs um, conscious um, so that uh, we didn't have to uh, to involve them in an anaesthetic um, so yeah a lot of our animals um, are amenable to us uh, taking uh, images uh, whether it's ultrasound or radiography we recently did um, you probably saw on the um, 
inside the zoo program at ultrasounding our pygmy hippo uh, when we thought that she was um, pregnant. Um, and again, in a, in a protected contact, so she was behind um, a railing and we were reaching through and underneath her whilst a keeper uh, fed her at the front end with peanuts um, to keep her occupied uh, while we were ultrasounding her. So there are techniques um, that we can uh, uh, utilize to avoid having to put an animal through an anesthetic, but some are just uh, too dangerous. I was just wondering with regards to the diagnostic imaging, is there any diagnostic imaging procedures that are routinely done for the sort of preventative or routine healthcare needs that you would do in the species sort of outside of for a a direct kind of a a condition or investigation? Is there a way they figure into sort of the, the routine care? Um, we we occasionally, um, certainly with some species, particularly um, some birds and some reptiles, m- may use radiography on a on a regular basis to look for um, evidence of any conditions such as metabolic bone disease, in particular, um, so developmental growth defects. We do um, look at um, similar um, uh, problems such as uh, hip. Uh, and elbow dysplasia in some species. We, we, we obviously suffer from a lack of data with a lot of the species that we work with. Uh, and so um, there may not be enough evidence or enough images out there for us to be able to make um, good comparisons. But for some species, there are. Um, koalas are a typical example. Um, and there are several papers that have been produced by Pai et al. Uh, over the years looking at um, hip and uh, uh, elbow uh, dysplasia in particular, which has been well reported uh, in koalas as a developmental and uh, gen- potentially inherited uh, problem. It's not entirely clear um, what the, the influence is. We know that certainly, yes, some of it is um, nutritional, um, but uh, some of it can be inheritable as well, as we would see in humans and uh, dogs. Uh, and so we routinely, once they've um, got to um, uh, their, their sort of um, maximal uh, growth size, um, we'll um, anaesthetize um, our koalas in order to do uh, hip, uh, elbow, uh, shoulder x-rays uh, to, to, to score them. Um, to be fair, there aren't many animals for which we have that sort of data set. Um, and so consequently, other than the, as I say, you know, metabolic bone disease, looking at bone density, or where we've got a, you know, a, uh, a female bird, for example, that's been uh, perhaps laying a, a large number of eggs during one season, and we want to check uh, bone quality. Um, then, for those individuals, uh, we, we we might put them through a, a sort of a health screen uh, rather than uh, uh, an actual um, uh, planned assessment. And are you ever using 3D modality imaging with any of your animals at Edinburgh Zoo? I know we were talking to Ian Elliott recently from Burgess, and he says he's occasionally had a trip up to Edinburgh. Yeah, I mean, we we, we, we have done um, uh, more for... Um, uh, as, as a research um, uh, uh, adjunct, if you like, so as a, as a byproduct of an investigation of a, of a problem. So we, we did some 3D modeling. A colleague of mine that worked with me, um, Dr. Romain Pizzi, did some 3D modeling with uh, um, some guys in uh, Berlin. Um, so Thomas Hildebrandt and uh, Frank Goritz at the Institute of Zoo and Wildlife Medicine in Berlin, where we looked at um, 3D modeling for uh, Eurasian beaver. Um, and uh, also for some some penguin species, um, we were particularly interested 
um, uh, you know, from bone uh, 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 shape, size, in case of, of fractures and uh, uh, the need for, for orthopedic repair. Um, so we did a little bit of that. Um, we did a little bit of, we've done some 3D um, photography stuff. And again, uh, my colleague um, uh, Romain had, uh, had done some interesting stuff uh, with photography, looking at 3D modeling of, um, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the surface, the, the topography of uh, one or two individuals, um, uh, uh, which was more for, for um, uh, identification of individual animals and also for, uh, 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 in some cases, looking at um, uh, uh, skull development. Um, we have certainly used MRI and CT it's not as common to do either of those two things. I think a lot of people think that we have a CT scanner or an MRI scanner on site at the zoo. We keep getting contacted by various NHS trusts um, to, to ask. They've got a, a bariatric patient and they, they say, have you got a large CT scanner that we could put a bariatric patient through? And we tactfully point out that we don't even have a CT scanner on site, let alone a bariatric one. So no, um, we, we would very much like to, but we... we, we we have a limited budget, unfortunately. Um, so no, we do. Have, we have made good use of um, uh, organisations such as Burgess, who've been very good, uh, and have brought trailers up with their mobile CT and MRI scans. But it's been um, perhaps a little bit less common because of the um, uh, the effort we have to um, uh, shut down part of the zoo in order to get them on site, and then we have to transport the animal to them. So we, we, we that always carries a risk to the animal, uh, but it also carries a public risk as well. So we have, um, for example, our male giant panda had um, cancer. Um, uh, people may be aware uh, uh, in both uh, testes um, a number of years ago, 2018, we identified it. And uh, at the time, we put him through an MRI scanner. Um, to try and identify if there was spread. Uh, he had both a seminoma and in one uh, testis and um, three small Sertoli cell tumors in the other. Um, uh, and we then, uh, about six, eight months later, put him through a CT scan to see again if there had been uh, any, any further uh, spread of the, uh, of the, of the cancer. Um, but that meant that we had to anaesthetize him, take him out of his enclosure, put him into a vehicle, anaesthetize, connected to an anaesthetic circuit, drive him very, very slowly to the CT scanner, stretcher him into the CT scanner, carry out the process, and then reverse the entire thing and take him back to his his enclosure. So there's a, there's a risk for the patient, um, but there's also a potential risk to members of the public and staff if the animal should wake up during the process and the transport. So we, we tend to do these procedures either with part of the zoo shut down or indeed out of hours um, so that there's actually less folk on site so that we don't end up either with a, a traffic jam or, a you know, God forbid, an animal that wakes up in a procedure and then, you know, runs amok. I'm imagining a giant panda, you would definitely have been using a, a bariatric CT Burgess have brought for you no just through a normal a normal well it, it just as normal yeah you'd be, you'd be surprised that the, the the male is about 130 135 kilos um and so the, the word giant people immediately start to think polar bear you know and that they're, they're they're not that big they're big but they're they're, they're no bigger than a you know a, a decent sized human being so they they fit quite nicely into the the standard ct and mri scans um and we we did something similar with a with a chimpanzee uh, fairly recently as well so um yeah it's um we're not using um uh 
uh, particularly uh, large equipment. Just all I can imagine is the sheer amount of paperwork that has to go with it all in making these plans. Yeah, there's a lot of plan. We, these these sorts of things we try not to do in a rush for obvious reasons. So yes, there's a lot of um, procedural stuff. The the staff um, have a briefing. We we obviously have to. Um, brief the the Burgess staff about safety um and whilst yes obviously you know whilst the scans going on we have to evacuate the room of course but nonetheless we we, we do have to take precautions and make sure that we have um enough of our staff around that if if, if anything did go uh awry that we could actually try and retrieve the situation and make the situation safe so yes um yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, our caseload is is relatively small, but the reason is is that everything takes inordinately longer than it would do in general practice because of the nature of the patients and the situation that we're working in. Just thinking about other diagnostic Im- imaging modalities, I'm thinking about all the different sizes and species of animals that you might want to use ultrasound on. So, um, what's your, you know your range of, of probes that you have, and your do you ever get diagnostic images involved to do anything for you? Are you are you doing all of it, or how does it work? We do do a lot of it ourselves, um, so, simply for convenience' sake. Um, as things sort of arise, um, we're we're you know we're we're, we're trying to deal with it, um, uh, you know. Uh, as and when cases pop up. Um, we have certainly used um, specialist ultrasonographers uh, over the years, and, and, and we certainly had uh, um, a number come in and uh, look at, a, for example, our, our giant panda um, at varying different times when uh, we were concerned, and also our, uh, our female um, panda at varying different times over the years when she was having reproductive tract assessments and so on. Um, so, um, but yeah, a, a lot of a lot of it is done in house. Um, so a lot of it is, it's difficult, not just because of size, but also because of, of, of understanding what is normal. And again, there are relatively few uh, image resources um, that we have available to us. An awful lot of it is an extrapolation of our understanding of the anatomy from having carried out surgery, or in some cases, uh, inevitably, any, any animal that uh, sadly uh, dies uh, uh, at the zoo, we, we post-mortem. And we do that as part of our health screening planning um, so that we can document that, you know, we're free of infectious disease on site. And also because we we clearly want to know, you know, what each and every animal has died of, if at all possible. Um, But also it it, it does help with our understanding of anatomy. Um, And whilst there are some very, very good textbooks out there and resources uh, for varying different species, anatomically speaking, um, some of it is, is really, really and trying to understand what you're looking at, um, you know, in a 2D um, ultrasound image when you're not entirely sure of the anatomy of the animal um, makes life very difficult. So we, we, we have a, a range, a microconvex and a, a standard uh, convex probe and also a linear um, and uh, from, from 10 megahertz down to about uh, three. Um, uh, at, we, we regularly use standoffs. Um, uh, so, you know, the, the, the slightly Heath Robinson um, uh, gel-filled latex glove. Um, if we've got a semi-aquatic species, then we, we, we often use water uh, as the standoff. So put the put the um, the frog or the aquatic organism in a, in a small poly bag with a, um, a limited amount of water and then try and ultrasound it through that um, to try and get an image. Um, our biggest challenge often is when we come to things like endoscopy as well. Uh, we have a, 
uh, a flexible gastroscope, uh, which is about two meters, but that, that isn't long enough to get all the way down to the stomachs of something like a giraffe, for example. So that one's, that one's out. Um, but then we also have species that are down to, uh, as I say, you know, a matter of a few grams. So we, we, we have rigid endoscopes as well. Um, but even, even those, the smallest one we have is a, is a fairly standard uh, Storz 2.7 uh, millimeter uh, uh, scope. Um, so there is a limit to the size of the animal that you can you can pop that into to, to have a look. Um, uh, so yeah, the, the, the flexibility is the problem, um, uh, and we have to uh, also uh, yeah try and try and decipher such diverse anatomy from avian to amphibian to even mammalian patients. You wouldn't believe some of the complexity and variations in the internal anatomy of some of the patients we look at. Some of them have huge livers, things like that. We have Bincherong at, at Edinburgh Zoo. They've got enormous livers. Um, you know, if you put an ultrasound probe on them the first time, you think that that must be enlarged. But um, having operated on a number of them, no, no, they, they just have really big livers. <laughs> That's just their normal liver size. Um, and of course, primates, a lot of them, um, the prosimians have livers that are more shaped like dog and cat livers, but the simians and the great apes have livers clearly more akin to humans, and so they're more right-sided, and so they extend down the right side of the abdomen, so they're lopsided when you're looking at them on ultrasound. Um, some animals have capacious guts and you never get to see their kidneys because they're just there's too much gas in the digestive system to actually be able to image round them, which can be very, very frustrating. Um, and then, you know, some animals are, are, are relatively straightforward. Our wild cats, for example, exactly the same as a domestic cat, internally speaking. So, yeah, don't tend to pose too many challenges. Uh, it's, that is incredible. I just... It's so interesting to see the range in uh, anatomical differences. Just talking about wildcats and going back to Eurasian beavers, it would be really interesting to know more about your conservation projects, if you wouldn't mind just uh, expanding on them. Uh, yeah, no problem. Um, so um, I've been with the RZSS since 2009, um, and that was the, the year that um, the organisation, in partnership with the Scottish Wildlife Trust, set up the Scottish Beaver Trial uh, in Knapdale. And that was um, uh, a Scottish government licensed uh, five-year trial to release beavers into a defined uh, area, which was Knapdale in, uh, in Argyll, um, as a... Um, uh, uh, to try and prove whether or not a successful reintroduction program for Eurasian beavers um, could go ahead. So I was involved in a lot of the um, uh, pre-release health screening, the um, designing with a number of colleagues, particularly um, Dr. Rasheen Campbell-Palmer, um, who's a zoologist and, uh, and you know, pretty much in the UK uh, and probably in Europe, to be fair, knows more about um, uh, beaver biology than almost any other human being, probably, I would imagine. Um, but she, she and I and uh, the rest of the team worked uh, on uh, devising the, the, the pre-release um, health screening programs because there was a number of big concerns that uh, uh, government and uh, um, the farming community, amongst others, had about the release of these animals. They've been associated with diseases such as Giardia. Uh, in particularly in uh, the North American beaver, that is in North America and occasionally the Eurasian beaver in Europe. Um, but also um, there have been the odd reports of, uh, uh, of them being host to organisms such as Echinococcus uh, multiloccularis in certain parts of Europe, particularly in Germany. Um, and uh, so we were, we were faced with a number of challenges. How do we ensure that the animals that we release are 
fit to release. Um, so that's important, clearly, from their welfare point, but also how they fit to, uh, for release and not a hazard to wildlife, domestic animals, and, and humans. Um, and so the, 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 the trial and the project, um, which, to be fair, sort of kind of morphed into a, a much bigger project when a bunch of feral beavers were found on the Tay um, uh, uh, estuary and catchment areas, um, uh, and we were asked by Scottish Government to, to help screen those uh, beavers as well, because those were a mixture of um, escapes and potentially uh, maybe illegal releases, um, but um, certainly now number probably over 500 individual beavers along the, the Tay and the Urn estuaries. Um, that was viewed as a, as a huge threat, actually, ironically, to our um, introdu reintroduction program, because if, if one you know, rotten apple, as it were, uh, was found in, in, in Tayside, it, it could actually just completely uh, kibosh the entire, the entire uh, release project. Um, so we spent a lot of time working with um, Nature Scott, um, uh, SNH's was, um, uh, so part of Scottish Government, the licensing authorities, um, under license trapping and health screening beavers in uh, and around Tayside produce a number of publications. Uh, interestingly, you know, you, you start these projects and you think something as um, common or garden in Europe as the Eurasian beaver, which has been part of, you know, well over 300 reintroduction projects across Europe over the last 50 years. Um, you would think that we knew pretty much everything that there was to know about the health and, um, again, physiology and anatomy of the Eurasian beaver. Um, and, and we didn't. Um, nobody had published normal baseline hematological and biochemical parameters for the Eurasian beaver before we did. Um, so when you're trying to find out, you know, clearly what's wrong with them, with a Eurasian beaver, you have to know what a normal healthy one looks like. Um, so baselines are, are, are vital. So we had to actually go back to square one. We also found out that beavers, we actually had one of our own beavers in Napdale fall sick and we retrapped it. We, it was observed to be, you know, not behaving normally. We were concerned. So we retrapped it uh, and brought it into captivity to health screen it and found that, yes, it was sick. Uh, it had septicemia. Um, from a from a from a wound that had become infected, a bite wound from another another beaver. Um, but interestingly, the first time I examined it under uh, anaesthesia, um, it had a, a horrific heart murmur, and I thought, well, okay, so this is this must be the the, the 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 problem. And this was very early on. This was right at the very beginning of this of this release project when I was you know only just being associated with the project. Um, and I got a cardiologist in uh, that I knew um, to, to do echocardiography. Uh, and so he started the process and went, OK, there's something very weird going on here. Do you know that they've got an extra um, uh, segment to the right atrium? And I went, well, the, the North American beaver has. So it would make sense that the Eurasian beaver has. But we've got nothing written down anywhere. Um, and I've not done a post-mortem on a, on a beaver by this stage. So I, I genuinely don't know. But it would make sense that that was the case. And so we went, yeah, well, it has, and that's what's causing the murmur. I can't actually see anything else, else wrong with the heart. Um, oh, but by the way, the blood pressure on this thing is incredibly low. And so it started a conversation. We went, right, okay, I think we need to find out a bit more about the biology because we spoke to a number of different vets that had worked with beavers, and none of them were, were, were particularly helpful in this particular 
direction. So we, we, we tagged onto the back of a project in Norway that was being run out of Oslo by um, Professor Frank Rosell, who's, who's again one of the Europe's leading um, beaver biologists. And he was tagging and health screening beavers under license uh, for the Norwegian government. And we tagged on the back of it uh, a little project to look at the cardiovascular system of these beavers whilst uh, they were being processed and uh, health screened for other reasons. And we identified that they've got phenomenally low blood pressure. Um, their, their diastolic is about 40 millimetres of mercury. Their systolic is about 80. So their average blood pressure is about 60 millimetres of mercury. Now, bearing in mind most mammals, um, blood pressure is a pretty conserved feature across most mammalia. This is quite unusual. And this is the reason for this extra segment in the right atrium. It's basically to stop the blood being sucked back out of the heart because of the low blood pressure system that they've got which means that every single beaver has a rip-roaring heart murmur, mid-systolic, often grade four, uh, particularly um, uh, pronounced. So they're a little bit like domestic cats, which can have a heart murmur and it not be pathological. So you can't make the diagnosis of pathology of cardiovascular disease in a beaver by simple auscultation. You have to do echocardiography to ascertain whether it's got normal cardiac function or not. Um, so th this, again, this was this was something that nobody had 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 recorded. Um, it seems bizarre that that was the case. And it had been for its um, separate species, the North American beaver. And you kind of go, well, okay, they're related, but they are separate species. Um, uh, you know, they have a different chromosome number, for heaven's sake. The Eurasian beaver's got 48 uh, genes. The, the, the North American's got 40. Um, so actually, they're a completely different species. Um, uh, and we were finding this all out for the first time. So that was a hugely interesting. And I think um, a lot of the work that we did around the initial part of the project um, set the scene for, for um, a lot of very good work that we later did to add to our understanding of disease knowledge. Um, leptospirosis was something that was absolutely a big concern uh, of a number of different researchers because of the experiences of the Dutch when they tried releasing beavers back in 1996. And they lost a whole load of beavers due to what they believed was leptospirosis. And there was certainly evidence of leptospirosis. They recovered it. There was um, a histopathology that confirmed um, leptospirosis deaths in some of them. They also had some other diseases going on as well. But Leptospira was therefore viewed as a major um, risk um, for, for beaver release. We did, a, a, over the sort of 10 years of the project, that we were looking at beavers across the UK, and we ended up um, acting as advisors to the um, the English, the one English licensed beaver project down in Devon and the River Otter. Uh, and we, we, we health screened those and, and, and did a, um, some work on them as well as our Napdale and Tayside beavers. And actually produced a publication showing that beavers are not actually a, 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 a significant carrier of leptospira. So unlike the brown rat, uh, uh, you know, another water associated rodent, the beaver is not a big reservoir of leptospira. We had an incidence rate of less than 5% of beavers uh, sampled over 180 individuals across the UK, um, Germany and Norway. Um, uh, and beavers, yes, will die of leptospira, but they can also recover from it. So actually, there's often another trigger factor um, that actually pushes a beaver over the edge when it becomes infected with leptospirosis. Uh, it's not a, a given that uh, a beaver infected with that organism is definitely going to die. Many of them will recover from it uh, and uh, not uh, then go on to be a carrier. 
Um, so I think a lot of that work, um, you know, is 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 it's wonderful to be involved in something that is literally in your own backyard. I often say to students that um, we know more about disease cycles of species in in Africa um, than we do about disease cycles in wildlife in our own country, um, because um, it, it's so much better studied in Africa. There is so much more emphasis, um, it seems, on some of the um, uh, uh, you know more endangered species overseas uh, than there is in in our own backyard. And so there is a, a wealth of information that we can uncover. Um, the wildcat stuff that we're involved with at the minute um, here at the Harlem Wildlife Park with our Breeding for Release project uh, is another such example. And uh, genetic researchers that work at the RZSS have um, demonstrated that the wildcat in the wild in Scotland is pretty much functionally extinct because of the interbreeding with feral cats. Um, something which hasn't happened in Europe. Um, so the wildcat population in places like Bavaria, for example, has been genetically assessed, and the genetic population there is, seems to be genetically distinct from the feral cat population. And there are many theories around this as to why this has happened. And one that's currently perhaps got the most favour at the minute is that the sheer number of wildcats in the UK, in Scotland, um, has dropped to such a low level, predominantly through persecution, particularly after the last war, um, that the wildcat has perhaps been left with no other option than to breed or interbreed with feral cats. Whereas in places like um, Bavaria, uh, the uh, population of wildcats has always been maintained at a certain minimal critical level where they, although they're living cheap by jowl with feral cats in that area, they're not actually interbreeding with them. They are remaining separate uh, and just breeding with their own species. Um, so yes, this this particular project aims to try and push the balance, hopefully back in the favour of the um, uh, the original wildcat by breeding uh, uh, wildcats in captivity, which ironically are, are, are more closely genetically aligned to the original wildcat in Scotland, um, and uh, then hopefully releasing them into the Cairngorms National Park over the next uh, four or five years. Years. And the vets are, are kind of key to that process because we're involved again in the disease risk assessment in making sure that we're releasing healthy animals, that we're not releasing animals that are carrying diseases that might cause problems for wildlife, domestic animals and, and humans, but also the monitoring post-release to make sure that the animals are coping with their environment. And that was something that was a very big part of our beaver trial, uh, was that we were uh, reassessing individuals, any individuals that, you know, had sadly died and were recovered. We fully post-mortemed, examined them, made sure that we understood as best we could what the process was behind their their, their death um, so that we could learn and understand better and improve uh, the uh, health and welfare of the uh, further releases and the success of the, uh, of the conservation program. And uh, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, reintroduction of that particular species. Is there any information on the fertility status of those wild cats that are bred with feral cats? Because I know in other species of cat, if they breed together, the offspring is then typically infertile. That may not be correct, but just what I thought is that do we know any more about these this inbreeding? 
Um, the, the, so feral cats and, and wild cats can interbreed um, and they can go on to then produce offspring that, that, that can further breed. So there is, a, there is an ability to do that, it appears. Um, so yes, you're quite right. Some species can produce fertile offspring through interbreeding between species and, and some can't. Um, so it is, it is possible, but it does appear. And what the, the, so the geneticists here, led by Dr. Helen Sen uh, at the RZSS, um, uh, their publication showed was that there is pretty much every conceivable genetic variation uh, currently in the UK from what we think is the most pure wildcat that we've got right the way through to the domestic cat and every shade of cat in between because of that genetic interbreeding that's gone on over the last 20, 30 years in particular um, and, is, and is still going on. So part of this release project is also uh, on the back of um, uh, working with Cat Protection and other organisations about uh, um, uh, neutering uh, feral cats um, and also promoting with... Um, uh, private cat owners, responsible pet ownership and uh, neutering and vaccination of uh, uh, privately held domestic cats to try and make sure that not they're protected, but also um, the wildcat is, is, is protected as well. When do you think you might be releasing your first set of wildcats? So um, the first set you've probably seen in the in the in the press the the first uh, few litters of kittens in the breeding centre uh, have been born over the last few weeks. We've just been going through. Um, uh, just uh, yesterday, we we vaccinated another uh, batch of uh, of kittens uh, in our breeding centre. Um, so the hope is that um, when they get to um, uh, dispersal weaning age, six seven months, that they'll move into um, uh, offshore. Um, uh, extensive uh, uh, pens here um, that will be a sort of a pre-release um, acclimatization. They're literally going to be released um, about two miles over the back of the of the park here. So the the, the landscape is is going to be very similar, um, and uh, we're hoping that the first set of cats will be released in 2023. Um, and the the aim is um, to potentially release, hopefully over the next sort of four years or so, uh, around about 60. Uh, individual cats into this identified area as in this initial trial release to see whether or not this uh, this this project works. Is there any worry with genetic diversity there, um, or is it multiple litters that you're from kind of different parents that you're then going to release? No, absolutely. And key to all of this is, um, again, coming back to the, the captive breeding program. And so um, for most zoos um, operating in Europe, such as ourselves, um, for an individual species, there will be a, a, a stud book keeper. There will be somebody that will be responsible for keeping the genetic scores of all the um, animals in all the, the captive collections throughout um, Europe. Um, and similarly so for our wildcat. And so our stud book keeper actually works here, a gentleman called uh, David Bartley. Um, and I act as the, the veterinary advisor along with uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Alice Bacon, to the wildcat stud book. And um, uh, he keeps um, all the 
um, uh, parentage scoring uh, for um, the captive wildcats and therefore is responsible for ensuring that we try and um, outbreed as much as we possibly can. Um, so the pairings of male and female adults together is carefully selected uh, to try and preserve as much genetic diversity as we possibly can. Uh, we don't just rely on the, the physical stud book, we are also relying on um, the genetic assessments. We're actually doing genetic analysis of each individual cat during the process when we're health screening them, we're also taking little uh, small uh, fur samples and little small blood samples so that we can actually look at um, the, uh, the genetic code of each individual um, so that, again, we can try and ensure that we make the best use of the genetic diversity that we have in captivity. Because, yes, absolutely, we, we desperately want to avoid any further um, what we call bottlenecking of, of genetics, narrowing of genetic pools. Just a question I want to ask of you. I know you... Uh, work with a lot of students and probably have a lot of students that ask you this question but we do have a few on the podcast that listen regularly if you got any advice if you had either students or vets that were thinking about a career in, in zoo medicine or conservation work I know you were saying about going into mixed practice or building your surgery skills in small animal practice but is there any particular recommendations that you would give? I think there are a number of routes that have opened up certainly since 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 I went into into the zoo world as it were um, uh, and the residency programs are, are, are one such um, so the the European Board of Veterinary Specialization which oversees all the European colleges uh, obviously has uh, criteria for um, uh, residency programs and, and the European College of Zoological Medicine runs a number of residency programs in Europe and North America. Uh, it's a three-year program and it's it's certainly one very good way of providing a, a strongly mentored um, route um, through uh, to uh, a, 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 if you like a training program that then allows you to sit um, uh, potentially, if you wish, uh, the examination to become a become a specialist. Um, the the before that point, we encourage because there's stiff competition. There are sadly not as many residency places as we would like because obviously each residency place has to have a mentor who's already a diplomate of that particular college, um, and and there aren't that many of us. There are only about. Um, 65 of us in throughout the world at the minute so they're growing they're getting more and more folk um, and not every one of those 65 diplomates is able to run a residency program so i think they're in, in europe at the minute there's about maybe 14 12 14 places uh, that come up every sort of two or three years so it's not a lot um so in order to uh, if you're really interested in going down the particular zoo health management side of things, um, then in order to, to to give you the best chance of getting a residency program, we, we yes, strongly recommend that um, you see a variety of practice. Sure, if some of that could be zoo and wildlife related, fine. But actually, from my perspective, and I think speaking to a lot of other zoo vets, um, one of the key skills is um, to have uh, uh, an experience of, of mixed practice as best you can. I know it's a, a dying um, discipline, um, but variety, large animal work, because an awful lot of clearly our patients are who stock um, of one shape or form or another, and and being here in the UK, they're they're, they're not um, they're not suffering usually from exotic notifiable disease. I'm glad to say they're usually suffering from endemic, um, uh, you know, bog standard foot problems, you know, pneumonias, um, digestive tract upsets, whatever. So understanding your way around uh, hoof stock in particular, 
um, if you've been able to hone also in private practice your surgical skills, that really is a big plus because the zoo world, yes, you will do surgery, but it will be sporadic. Um, it will not be on a regular basis. And if you're not particularly um, happy with your surgical skills, um, then you may find that you struggle, um, you know, really honing them and, and being confidence when when then presented with you know a, a significant uh, you know exploratory laparotomy or something like that in a in a, a novel species um, we also yes I mean if you can um, gain um, you know some further qualification in a relevant discipline and we often because we have such stiff stiff competition for the residency programs we often recommend that um, applicants have um, either carried out the, the you know the, the certificate in zoological medicine or related um, uh, uh, level seven um, uh, uh, qualifications that are available in in, in zoo medicine um, or masters um, again depends upon the institution some zoos their residency programs are tied up with their local university and they tend to run a dual residency and master's program and so actually they prefer you not to have a master's uh, qualification before you enter we've never done it that way here and um, several of our residents have have actually got masters um, in uh, wild animal health for example from uh, from london which is a, a popular one that gives a very good grounding um, in um, uh, zoo and wildlife uh, medicine um, so, yeah, I think variety, being exposed to a different number of species um, doesn't have to be purely exotic. Um, domestic is really still important. Um, uh, brushing up your, your um, surgical skills, particularly if you're working in practice with things like birds and reptiles and, and fine tissue stuff, um, because that is definitely not going to be something you're going to get exposed to regularly in a zoo. And when you need to, to, to carry out a, you know, a salpingectomy or something like that in a tortoise, then... Um, um, then having to rush to the textbooks is, is is not a great idea. So it's good to good to have that under your belt before you've uh, you've arrived. Less of having possum next to you as you're uh, performing <laughs> your surgical procedures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it it happens, and you know sometimes it's it's the only way. But um, yeah, <laughs> if if you can have a little bit of a previous experience, then it obviously. And helps. I know you were saying that research in our own kind of native animals is lacking. Are there any particular species that you are you know really the lowest research in those areas that need improving? I think there are a number of different species that, um, yeah, could do with better research. I mean, you know, I've worked for a number of years with water voles and, and they're a species which had a 90% population crash since 1910. Um, and, uh, and still, we, we, we don't fully understand a lot of the disease cycles uh, associated with them. Again, leptospirosis has often been suggested as a problem with them, um, but it's it's still not fully clear. Um, but however, there, there are other species that we're, we're uh, involved with here at um, the Harlem Wildlife Park, um, which really have almost nothing uh, written down at all. Uh, and so we're working with invertebrate species reintroductions, our uh, pine hoverfly uh, release. So pine hoverflies, as their name suggests, are closely associated with ancient pine woodlands and need really old woodlands and rotting wood to, to, to complete their life cycle, all of which is, is sparse and few and far between now, sadly, in Scotland. And so the species is almost completely died out. And we've been doing a breeding for release program here, which has uh, released, um, I think, over 7,000 larvae. It sounds an awful lot, but it's a very small fly. Um, uh, so over 7,000 larvae um, were released um, 
uh, fairly recently, and we've had some success uh, in field surveys that have indicated that that adult flies are now being found in the area that we've released them. So we're we're pretty certain that they have pupated and and become become adults. But actually, nothing has been written down about disease uh, in this particular species. And so you can imagine, from a vet's perspective, you you bring a whole bunch of of uh, uh, eggs initially, um, and then obviously hatching into larvae and then adult flies into a number of small facilities in a confined area. If any one of those has got anything nasty, then it's going to rapidly be transferred throughout it. And you've just wiped out your entire colony. Um, So doing a lot of uh, pre um, uh, uh, research into uh, invertebrate diseases, and we had a little bit of a background in that. We've we've done work with parchula snails and and release of those into Tahiti, uh, another species that uh, we've been involved in reintroducing. Um, and we've done some some background work, but that's obviously a mollusk. And now we're we're going over to an insect. Um, and the pretty much the textbooks, the only insect for which there is anything much written down about disease is the honeybee. But it's a place to start. So we start there and we work outwards. And then we're kind of learning on the job. We're running background tests. We're doing histopathology, would you believe, on flies that die um, and larvae that die and then scratching our heads and trying to interpret what the histopathology might mean or might not mean. Um, But we're building up a database and that's the only way you can move things forward uh, and hopefully better understanding the species and putting in basic biosecurity and uh, basic practices that make common sense, but tweaking them every now and then when we find another problem pops up. Um, you get a humidity problem and a fungal problem and then something else comes on the back of it. And then, so yes, th- th- these are, are perhaps some of the more challenging, but are nonetheless, you know, very interesting uh, and stimulating uh, aspects. And uh, when people say, yes, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a, a post-mortem on a fly, they kind of look at you as if you've got several screws loose, but um, <laughs> They're, they're nonetheless less, no less deserving than, than a mammal or a bird. Um, we, we, we still have a vested interest in making sure this reintroduction works. Is that a classic banter, isn't there, between doctors and vets that real, real doctors treat more than one species, but you zoo vets are taking it to a whole new level. <laughs> no literature published about any of the things that you treat. And it, no. The list no, keeps I, growing I, as well. And, and this and this is it. And and, and as I say, you, you introduced me at the beginning as a, as a specialist in zoo and wildlife medicine. But I clearly, as as we found out during this talk, that that term is very much an oxymoron when it comes to, to to zoological medicine. You cannot be a specialist in every single species. The speciality really is is adaptability, which I think is probably the vet's strongest suit anyway. Uh, and being able to extrapolate, being able to apply basic first principles, um, and just try try and um yeah do your damnness to find out what 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 is behind what is normal in the vast majority of cases is it's often one of our biggest headaches what what does a normal healthy animal look like because nobody has i'm sure people have found out they've just not written it down anywhere (laughs) that we can actually find it's just so like mind-boggling that we've barely scratched the surface on this wealth of data that is yet to come in the future um, and also notes the importance of clinical records. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Write things down. And if you can publish them, please publish them. <laughs> <laughs> How do you 
control with you know outbreaks of avian influenza amongst you know your bird collections in the zoo or um at the, with the highland wildlife park how do you stop any kind of cross contamination i mean it's, it's a really good question and it's it's one that that all zoos struggle with because in order to provide um you know a a um welfare uh, friendly and safe environment for the the captive birds um, it is well nigh impossible um, for example take our penguins at, uh, at Edinburgh Zoo we cannot house them if we put them in a house they would you know drop off the perch or fall over shall we say very very quickly because they're highly susceptible to fungal problems like aspergillosis um, so we take a number of different steps Clearly, biosecurity, foot dips, etc., is very, very important. Uh, uh, keep us obviously wearing uniforms. We we stop a, a lot of the um, uh, public interactions. You know, the, we used to do um, uh, penguin parades, and and those all stopped during the the avian influenza outbreak, so that the birds are staying in their enclosure. We have strung fishing wire across the uh, the top of the what is clearly an open topped uh, pool area to try and. Uh, reduce the likelihood of birds coming in but we can't put a net over it because it's a huge area and the simple weight of the net would it would it would disintegrate underneath its own weight um, uh, never mind the fact that the squirrels make holes in nets faster than you can you can patch them up they're, they're, they're just a nightmare um, but we also with our penguins we 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 have historically and we continue to do so for a number of different reasons we hand feed them um, and that's for, for several very good reasons. It, it means that we can keep a, a food register of, uh, of what each bird is eating, because one of the very early signs of disease in, in Gentoo and, and king penguins in particular, uh, with aspergillosis, which they are susceptible to, is a loss of appetite. It's actually often not respiratory disease. It's, it's a loss of appetite. Um, second thing is, if a bird's on medication, we can easily medicate it. But the third thing is, because we're hand feeding as opposed to scatter feeding, um, it minimizes um, bringing wild birds in. It, it reduces that attraction for wild birds coming into the uh, into the enclosure. So we 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 have an issue. Uh, we 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 are aware that we have to. We've got a valuable. Uh, collection that we need to protect we take as many steps as we possibly can but we've always got to keep an eye on welfare and we talk regularly with Scottish Government and the veterinary advisors in Scottish Government um, to make them aware of what steps we're taking um, and, and at the same time also to, to take their advice um, uh, you know when it comes to, to, to disease prevention um, to make sure that we are following best practice but at the same time um, yeah, we're, 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 we're alerting them to the fact that, uh, uh, yeah, we, we, we cannot, for example, house, uh, you know, en masse 180 uh, penguins. Um, it's just not, it's just not going to happen. No, that makes complete sense. And I just it was very interested to know, because I know in practice, especially in the south of England at the moment, they're limiting, well, completely stopping birds coming into practices because of the risk of avian influenza. Um, so it's, it's just interesting to understand how you guys are trying to control it as much as possible well uh with that that has been an incredibly interesting chat i just want to say thank you again simon uh, for joining us on the podcast um i don't know you, about you guys but i really enjoyed that and learned so much especially the fact that eurasian beavers and north american beavers have an additional segment to their right atrium it's always so so interesting to hear about vets who have diversed away from normal general practice but still using a lot of the skills that you uh, learn in mixed practice and swanal practice. We'll be back next month for another episode of Focal Point. Until then, please take a look at our social media platforms for lots more great imaging content. 
until then it's a goodbye from all of us goodbye goodbye goodbye